Welcome back, everybody, to a new episode of the podcast. Uh, as always, we're going to be going over recent literature on pediatric sports medicine, spanning whatever journals it comes out in. Today, we have articles from six different journals lined up we're going to discuss, some briefly, some in depth. My name is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Hey, I'm Cordelia Carter. I work at uh, NYU in New York City. I'm a pediatric orthopedic sports surgeon. Dax Varkey. I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I trained in adult and pediatric sports shoulder elbow. Pamling University, Wisconsin. Hey, Neeraj Patel. I'm at uh, Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. This is Dominic Arjula from Children's Hospital in New Orleans. The first article on our list is from AJSM out of HSS, and it is entitled Comparison of Ligament Isometry and Patellofemoral Contact Pressures of MPFL Reconstruction Techniques in Skeletally Immature Patients. It's going to be the first of two MPFL uh, articles that came out recently. As usual, the articles we're all discussing are all EPUBs ahead of print and uh, not out actually in the journals yet. This one was a cadaver study looking at four MPFL techniques for skeletally immature patients. Number one, uh, put it at shadow's point like an adult. Number two, put it distal to the physis so you don't damage the physis. Number three, an adductor sling. And number four, actually transfer the uh, adductor tendon to the patella. So in other words, those two adductor techniques are going to be proximal to the physis versus the, the second te- technique I mentioned where you put it uh, distal to the physis. So the authors found that Shuttle's point was the best isometry. The spot distal to the physis was second best, and specifically it was very good from 10 to 60 degrees. And then with further flexion, it actually loosened a little bit. The adductor techniques, on the other hand, were less isometric, and they actually tightened inflection, which creates all sorts of problems, um, like potential graft failure or increased uh, knee pressure. So the authors recommended attaching the uh, graft distal to the physis. So what does everyone do? You guys have uh, any thoughts on how this would change practice or reinforce it? For me, it reinforces what I do typically in a skeletally immature kid going just distal. Yeah, same here. I think uh, I've never actually done the adductor techniques, but I I, I do the epiphyseal fixation as well. And I think this kind of reinforced that, like Pam said, you know, one of the interesting things I think too, is that they, they mentioned that beyond 60 degrees of flexion, that epiphyseal uh, graft seemed to loosen a little bit, which, you know, I think from a research perspective, this is interesting. Practically speaking, I, I wonder how much that actually matters in vivo because, you know, what position of flexion are most of these kneecaps dislocating? Probably not at 90 degrees necessarily. So, you know, to me, that sort of says that as long as you're not planning on dislocating your kneecap uh, beyond 60 degrees of flexion, that this technique is probably uh, probably reasonable in that population. I certainly I agree. I mean, I think um, this reinforces what I do as well for a skeletally immature patient. I mean, I think it's nice to have some literature support uh, for that. If we if we can't have something that's perfectly isometric, I think this is a, a good, at least existing, um, you know, existing alternative. I feel the same way. Fix it with a tenodesis screw, just distal to the physis. So I love research that. Uh, Tells me I can keep doing what I like doing. I do the same thing. I, the one thing that I've done, uh, and not to jump articles, uh, it, does everyone fix with a tenodesis screw, or does does anyone do an onlay, or does anyone do anything different? I, I've currently done a couple of onlays, and then most of the pediatric, you know, skeletally immature patients, I've done a twenty millimeter socket, sort of aimed away from the physis. Do suture anchor. Do suture anchor as well. Yeah, for me, it just depends on kind of how much real estate we have. Because obviously, if it's a really young, small, skeletally mature kid, then obviously, real smaller real estate. So in that case, I'll 
I'll use a suturanger, almost like a tinnitesis screw kind of, but, um, you know, something that's a little bit smaller. And, and actually drill a socket, correct? Not just online. Correct. Exactly. Yep. All right, great, uh, great segue. So our next article, also AJSM, this one is from Duke, and it is entitled Anchor-Based Femoral Fixation of Fisial Sparing MPFL Reconstructions. So the authors here were looking for a way to reduce the risk to the distal femoral physis during MP MPFL reconstruction. Another biomechanical study, in this case, they used pig cadavers, and they found that suture anchors were stronger than tenodesis screws at uh, Shuttles Point. So... I like this idea because I don't love putting in that tenodesis screw, even though, like I said, that's what I've, I've historically done. You know, the, the aperture is a funny, funny shape. I've had them fall into the femoral canal because they were too small, even though they were line to line. It's hard to tell when the screws all the way down sometimes if it's deep in there. But I, I do think I would need a bigger incision and more dissection potentially to put a, a suture anchor back there. I've gotten used to sort of working blind with the, the tenodesis screw. Plus, I like being able to pull the graft through the other side of the femur to tension it. So how, how do you guys sort of technically do the, the people who use like to use suture anchors? Yeah, so um, I've used suture anchors. It's kind of picked it up in training, but I'll use a double-loaded suture anchor. I like an all-suture one, to be honest with you. And I'll do my fixation on the femur side first. So it's at the kind of flexed portion of the graft, and then you bring your two ends up. Um, so when I'm tensioning, I'm tensioning by pulling up towards the patella, uh, and then I'm using suture anchor in the patella as well. Um, some of the congenital kids have a tiny, tiny, tiny patella, and on those kids, I do more of a um, MPFL, MQTFL, as opposed to bringing both limbs to the patella. And then you can do any number of things with kind of leftover graft, sewing it into periosteum of the patella, typically folding it over. I've kind of messed around with a few different ways of doing it. Not sure that I have a specific favorite, but I like the idea of periosteum as part of the fixation. I agree with that. I think that's part of the, like the iliotibial band um, ACL reconstruction, right? Is like, I think exactly. that's what it really teaches you like the power of the periosteum in a young kid that you can, you can actually, you can reconstruct an ACL entirely by just stitching it to periosteum and have really pretty terrific outcomes. So I agree with you. I think especially in the young kids, anyway, you can use the periosteum either either primarily or secondarily as almost as like a, you know, a backup is useful. Uh, I typically, as most of you have said, use a suture or, um, sorry, the interference screw in the femur, although, gosh, when that fails, it's so frustrating. Um, and the, the times that I've had, actually, because sometimes I've had it fail, especially in like the, or I mean, fail at the time of surgery, like, you know, you recognize it, but like the screw just doesn't feel right. It feels like it's swimming. It's it somehow always seems to be like a 280 pound kid and you're like really digging in a deep hole. And so, you know, my rule now is actually we just make that incision big and we look at it because oh, I don't want to, yep. I don't want to get surprised by a post-op x-ray where the screw isn't where I think it is, or I feel like I've lost my fixation. So, and, and if I've had problems, like I will think about bailing out to a suture anchor and Pam, like you, I really like as for the little kids or actually in a revision setting, the all suture suture anchors, cause they're small and yet still powerful enough, I think to give you the fixation you need. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Nice suture anchors. Because our senior partner does the same thing. And especially in the scuttling mature kids, it goes right to the periosteum. Not even use a suture anchor at all. I just thought he was crazy doing that, but uh, uh, he was Great results doing it, and um, uh, as far as the scuttling immature kids, and he goes uh, in the fifth assist and sews it right to the parasite. I think it's technically difficult to do that. 
um, you know, to, to get a good bite in that periosteum, but he does it. Uh, but I use double-loaded suture anchors. What sutures are you guys using to tie into the periosteum? Because I've had a, I've done, that's, I use a very similar technique, but I've had two kids who didn't like, very thin females, who basically didn't like the knots. They felt like they could see them or that they, the under, basically on top of their patella. Uh, one of them, I actually went back and took it out. I mean, it's just taking out a couple of knots, but still, if there's any suggestions or thoughts, do you use absorbables or do you use, you know, a high strength non-absorbable? What, what are you guys tying it in with? Yeah, I, I do. Um, oh, without using any brand names here, but uh, O O caliber uh, non-absorbable suture. So I, I I will do for my graph usually. I'll I'll do a quad turndown technique. I don't know if anyone else really does that. It's a little bit of a different way to do it, but um, I just like sort of staying out of the patella altogether as far as drilling or implants or that kind of thing if I can. So I'll do the quad turndown thing, and as part of that, I'll I'll stitch that uh, when we fold it over. I'll stitch that to the patellar periosteum um, and use O O caliber stuff and I'll, I'll try to keep the knots off of the the graft itself so i'll keep it like you know on the on the patellar portion and that tends to kind of sink it down a little bit and i haven't knock on wood haven't had any major problems with that so far with prominence but i i can totally see how it potentially could be um, i think one of the issues that you could run into at least with that turndown technique is that if you if the graft starts becoming really thick at the portion that you're folding it over and then you've got some suture in there um, that can become an issue. So just kind of like walking that line and uh, making sure it's not too thin, not too thick is, is important. Kind of like the, the Goldilocks technique, if you will. And for me, I, um, if I'm sewing it into patellar periosteum, like typically I've had a suture anchor in the patella at least, if not two. Um, and so it's really like a backup kind of stitch. And so I'm using like a O absorbable braided stitch. And just, just to quickly go back to this, the whole sort of magic of the periosteum, I was telling my resident today, so Todd Lawrence at CHOP, one of the things that he taught me, and I don't typically do this technique, but it tends to work well, it seems, is he fixes the, the graft, he uses an owl graft usually, and he'll fix it to the patella with the uh, basket weave technique. I don't know if anyone does that or seen that, but you're basically making full thickness slits over the anterior portion of the patella and then kind of like the superior portion slash quad tendon insertion and then weaving the, each limb of the graft in and out of that and then stitching at each pass with a uh, non-absorbable suture. First time I saw it, I was like, there's no way this securely holds this patella. Like, no way, you know? And I was giving him all kinds of grief. And then he literally took the, he'll, he'll probably kill me if he listens to this podcast, but he literally took the, the, the graft in his hand like a bucket handle and kind of started waving the leg around with it. And it, you know, didn't budge. So I was like, okay. I believe. So I think, again, just to kind of reiterate the, the power of that periosteum, it's, it's pretty amazing. All right. Well, cool technique. Let's uh, move on to the next one. Next article is out of JPO and from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. It is entitled Saucerization and Repair of Discoid Lateral Menisci with Peripheral Rim Instability, Intermediate Term Outcomes in Children and Adolescents. Uh, so there were 32 knees with discoids and a tear at the meniscocapsular junction, and they were all treated with saucerization and meniscus repair, and overall the results were very good. There were only three revisions for uh, either a repeat meniscus repair or partial meniscectomy. 90% returned to the same level of sports. Follow-up was good. It was uh, at least two and a half years, an average four and a half years. So, you know, I don't think there's a huge surprise to this article, but in conclusion, it works well. The authors uh, basically described using uh, just a basket for the whole resection of the uh, discoid, and they routinely did marrow stimulation uh, using a curette to uh, dig through some cortex in the notch. Is anyone doing anything different or have techniques that they really like for this kind of procedure? My 
curls, uh, I don't do anything significantly different. I, I do uh, bone marrow stimulation. At the, I usually use a microfracture pick, but rather than a, than a curette, but I, I do something to improve the biological healing environment in the setting of a, a discoid repair. Uh, Pam probably has seen this too. One of the tricks I really like is to use a banana blade or a beaver blade, actually, especially if, to, to help um, just start to macerate that tissue, which you know is uh, at times, especially when it's so thick and you just can't get a meniscal biter around it. Um, I think that's a nice trick to have in your back pocket um, as well. The one thing, you know, I pulled this article to review for uh, my residents with Journal Club recently. And the one thing um, that I pointed out to them is I think that discoids, it's so important to be really specific with our nomenclature. Because I think, you know, when I look at at some of the sentences, like these authors to me, you know, say that meniscocapsular tears lead to hypermobility. But to me, a meniscocapsular tear can be unstable, but actually part of the pathology of a discoid meniscus can be hypermobility even without a tear. And so the way I think about discoid menisci is, you know, is the shape normal or abnormal and you're going to address the, the morphology? Um, is it torn or untorn and you're going to fix tears? And then is it stable or unstable and you're going to do any peripheral stabilization that may be the result simply of, uh, you know, anomalous connections rather than tearing? But I think especially since this is something that's so um, unusual and unique to pediatric orthopedic sports medicine, that having really specific nomenclature is important for us to study it and understand it and then teach it. Along those lines, great point, Cordelia. I think the, uh, as far as I know, the PRISM uh, meniscus rig is, is looking at, at that, kind of like re-looking at the uh, Watanabe classification and you know, figuring out is, is there better ways that we can describe these things to maybe you know, encompass some of the, the concepts that you talked about. So that, I, I totally agree with you on that. I think, you know, this is an interesting study and, and certainly you always want to be a little cautious with level four case series type of, type of stuff, um, at least as far as like altering practice or anything like that. But one of the things that I like most about this is that I think if I remember correctly, almost half of the, these unstable menisci or uh, torn, uh, you know, meniscus sep- capsular separations were anterior. And, you know, if you look at the original Watanabe classification, it's complete, incomplete, incomplete and risk for variant, which is thought of normally as more of a posterior kind of uh, instability. And I've had a streak of these lately, like three or four of my last few that um, have all been sort of anteriorly disrupted. And I'm the first couple I saw, I was like, oh, did they somehow tear it like this? And I was a little, little thrown off. You know, I haven't been doing this very long, clearly. So maybe it's just lack of experience. So I'm like, what am I looking at? And, you know, we did some inside out repairs and some other things. Um, and then I, I sort of started seeing more and more. And I'm like, yeah, no, I think this is just, you know, something that can happen. So, and I don't think that's really talked about as much and described in the literature and sort of definitely not in the Watanabe, the Watanabe classification. So I think it's nice that they kind of brought that to light because I think it's important to sort of talk about that. And I, I always tell all my residents that discoids are kind of like snowflakes, right? Every, every single one is different in some weird way. Um, and so until you get in there, you know, you, you, you gotta be sort of ready for everything. So, I, but I, yeah, I was interesting. I, I thought it was interesting that they brought up the anterior um, separations as well. I agree with you. I've seen, I feel like I see a lot of those and the ones that I've operated on, they seem to be kind of small puny tissue anteriorly and then get that really kind of thicker, more typical discoid, like uh, posterior. And you have to be really careful because you can easily take away too much tissue in those ones. You know, when I read this, I'm very much more pessimistic about discoids in general, you know, and I think like this was maybe up to four years of follow-up or something like that. But like the five to 10 years post-initial surgery is what I think of is that like, oh goodness, 
you know, and I think this maybe just stopped too short to catch all of that. And I worry about it because you've got those kids that are four or eight and they're having their first surgery then. So then like you get another five years and they're 13, you get another five years and they're like meniscal transplant candidates. Like that's what I always think of as the discoid kid. But a question I have for you guys is say you're seeing somebody who you're got an MRI for a different reason, right? They have an ACL tear, they have a tibial spine injury. And then on the MRI, you see like a full-fledged discoid meniscus. It's got that interest substance, like high intensity T2 signal, but not necessarily a discrete tear. Like, what do you tell families? And, you know, I, I tend to ask, like, did you have any knee symptoms before this acute injury? Was it ever popping or giving out? And if they say no, if they had zero meniscal-like symptoms or knee symptoms at all before an acute injury, do you approach that at all differently? Um, and what are you telling to patients and families? And I think that's a hard one for me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Pam. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. One just like that kid with an OCD got an MRI and there's a disc one. You know, like, oh, hell, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the problem here? Which one came first? Um, the discoid, right? What's it? Yeah. Well, yeah, the discoid. Yeah. yeah. Sure, you're right. That's what did come first. What's causing the pain? You know, where's the, what's the, the etiology of the pain? And, um, you know, there's sort of amorphous um, symptoms both sides. You know, there's, there's you try to get. Joint line symptoms, is it on the joint line? Yes, sometimes, maybe not sometimes. So that's interesting. But when I, if I do end up having to go in there and fix it, um, I'll probably end up fixing both, I think. I think the, the discussion of discoids and the fact that I think we underappreciate what a really bad problem they are, especially in like the little kids, sort of to Pam's point about like, wow, this becomes a, even if it's in every five, you can buy five years, like, gosh, they're still young at the end of 15 years. I think that speaks to the real importance of managing alignment. So I have a very low threshold now to do any, you know, to put eight plates in or, you know, a transficeal screw to, to do a hemiopithecinesis if I detect any malalignment in the setting of a discoid in, in a young kid. Because I think you really, I think right from the start, you're thinking about joint preservation, knowing that there is an association with OCD, like just knowing that those joint contact pressures are abnormal and that this has the potential to be, a, you know, a, sp a spiral going forward. So I think that speaks to the importance of thinking about joint preservation right from the start. Yeah, just to kind of go back to the to Pam's sort of point about what to do with the sort of the asymptomatic discoid or the incidental discoid. I, I agree. That's a little bit of a tricky one. I think in general, I sort of say if it's not a problem right now, leave it alone. If there's no discrete tears or symptoms, then I just leave it. I did have a kid who, um, similar to the situation you guys were talking about, except his OCD was medial femoral condyle and he had a discoid lateral meniscus. Um, and the discoid, we just dis we discovered incidentally on his MRI when we were working up the OCD. And so he needed surgery for his OCD, but his lateral meniscus seemed to be totally asymptomatic and there were no tears in the MRI, so we just left it. Um, and then he did well for a while, and then slowly he started having knee pain, knee pain, knee pain. He's like, what's going on? Uh, we re-MRI'd his knee, and now his discoid looked kind of like garbage, right? So... Uh, we we just went in about a month ago and, and took care of the discoid. So it, it does make you wonder a little bit, like, should I have just done something then? But I don't know that you can make an argument that, that you should have. So I, I think there's... I think we all see, like, the partial, thin, the, the meniscal tissue actually looks normal, but they're technically a discoid. And, like, to me, those are those are by and large asymptomatic and unlikely to degenerate. But I think... So I think it really depends on... That's versus the, like, Pam 
in your description, maybe one that is like a little bit thicker, has that horizontal, you know, all the way to the periphery uh, degeneration already, like to maybe that's potentially more of a bad actor. So I don't think it's just the mere presence of a discoid. It re- really is. It's like morphology and other characteristics that, that probably predispose, you know, the kid to developing symptoms. Yeah. So this is partly asking for advice because I have one coming up that it's like an eight-year-old kid with a tibial spine avulsion um, from a trampoline injury. And I'm going to go fix it. It's totally detached and, you know, retracted. And he happens to have this discoid and it looks like, you know, complete covering the entire plateau, that thickened appearance. And it's not like the Oreo cookie, you know, signal through the center. It's the like, just a little bit of extra brightness to it, right? And with him being as young as it is, what I basically told the family is I was going to see if there was any instability in it. And if there is, I'm going to repair the instability. And in order to truly do that, you have to saucerize it. But I guess if it's not unstable, do I still take some of the tissue away? And, you know, as soon as you get that first bite into it and you see that like horrible tissue, then it's kind of like, oh man, do you really want to be doing that? You know, but that was going to be my approach to it. And, you know, whether it's right or wrong, who knows, but he's also so young. Cordelia, I love your point about the alignment thing though. I, I think that's probably something that's very much overlooked and sometimes hard in the young kids who kind of have that natural physiologic valgus at their age anyways, but certainly something to pay attention to and you know, another reason to follow up and then not to be like long-winded on this, but follow-up question for you guys, when you see a discoid, uh, whether it was like asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic and you're not operating on it, are you still following these more regularly or doing any kind of like, I guess, screening or routine imaging on them? Um, I'm not, I always tell patients like, well, first of all, it's sort of like the question, do you MRI the other knee when it's my family asks you to, right? I don't go looking for problems. I mean, yeah. I think you've got a kid who's got an asymptomatic discoid meniscus. That's a, that's not an operative problem. And you tell them to come back if they develop symptoms, you know, swelling, locking, mechanical symptoms, pain. And the, it's the example I always cite is, what, you know, teaching anatomy. We were dissecting like a 90-year-old cadaver's knee, right? And um, our cadaveric knee and found a crystallized discoid. And so to me, that was such a nice um, example of how you can live, a, you know, a long life with a, a probably completely asymptomatic discoid meniscus, especially if it's one of those like thin, partial, um, but technically a discoid. So I don't go looking for problems. Yeah, I agree. I think the only one caveat I might just add to that, I definitely have a lot of a lot of um, patients, and particularly maybe you do too in, in New York, but uh, I have a lot of patients that either, you know, the family doesn't speak English or there's definitely some barriers to kind of access to care or sort of be willing to want to want to come back and stuff like that. So some of the folks that I think that, you know, if I get a sense that, you know, even if this kid does start having some problems, they may just kind of, you know, suck it up and drive on, or they may be hesitant to come back, or they live super far away, so it might not be on their mind or something like that. Those kids, I sometimes may just say, hey, come back in six months or a year or something like that. But I agree. Otherwise, I'm not, I'm not looking for trouble. I'm not opening up any cans of worms. All right. So for our next article, it's from another journal, JPOB. And this is definitely in the miscellaneous uh, category. Uh, it's called Classification of Stress Fractures of the First Rib in Adolescent Athletes, and it's out of Japan. The authors described 10 fractures, almost all from baseball, of the first rib. And uh, interestingly, half of them went on to non-union, which was mostly asymptomatic, 
one had such a large callus that it caused thoracic outlet syndrome and required rib resection. Most of uh, these fractures um, have been thought to occur at the groove of the sub- subclavian artery as a weak spot, which was found to not always be the case in the study. Has anyone seen one? I have. I have amazing non-operative sports pediatricians that are, that are at our place that if anybody's seen them in Chicago, it's probably them uh, and, and not me. So I, I can't say I have anything useful to add, <laughs> add to this article. I do love that N of 10 over 11 years. <laughs> but I will say much, much respect to the, to the Japanese baseball studies because they, they mm-hmm. have the volume to be able to, to, to figure these things out. So for what it's worth. Agree. I mean, I think this study is an argument against sports specialization, right? I think. Yeah. There we go. Well, it is, right? I mean, it is. these are the kinds of things that we wouldn't see if we weren't, you know, if you weren't overexposing baseball players to baseball at young age, I think. Yeah. Uh, thank thank fan, you. Obviously, but. No, th- this is great. Thank you for finding a way to, to like bring us in, <laughs> into this paper because. <laughs> I was I was gonna like make a joke about the McRib coming back to McDonald's or something. Or I, you know, I don't know what else to talk about for ribs. But you're absolutely right. I think this, that's a great way to look at this. Is that hey, sports specialization at a young age? Maybe that's what's causing this to be a problem in the first place. All right, perfect. That is a better conclusion than I could have hoped for. Uh, so next, we're moving on to the journal Arthroscopy with another study from HSS. This one is entitled Role of Age on Success of Arthroscopic Primary Repair of Proximal ACL Tears. So this was not strictly a peds or an adolescent study. Uh, they had uh, 113 patients. 27 of them were uh, under age 21. The reason we're talking about it is the authors found the highest failure rate after ACL repair was in those younger patients under 21 years old. And a really impressive difference, they found 37% failure in those younger patients, and only three to four percent in the older age groups. Um, so that's obviously a huge difference. Other studies in young patients have been very mixed. Some showing no failures, some showing forty percent failures, like this. Um, so basically, the authors recommended use uh, using repair of ACLs in young patients with extreme caution. Is anyone doing these or considering these or thought about these? <laughs> To me, this is one of those, like, it's, it has such tight indications, right? It has to be, like, the perfect pattern and the perfect timing, you know, in order to consider doing a, a primary repair in a kid. I mean, I think this is interesting because it's really counterintuitive, right? You would imagine that bone-to-bone healing or presumably or a ligamentous sleeve or something that you'd be repairing would, would be most likely to heal in a kid. So it's interesting because it's so counterintuitive. I, I don't have a good answer. I mean, would, would anybody have a hypothesis as to why that would be true? I think there's some confounding thing for sure. Uh, to me, there's a little bit of what are people going to be doing during their recovery and after their recovery? Who's going to feel better after the fact? And like, as you know, somebody who also takes care of pediatric patients in a trauma setting, you know, you cast people, not the fracture, right? Like you brace people, not the injury all the time. And so like they feel better, better than you earlier than you want them to. And, you know, if you look at the age groups, who's more likely to go back to something that would cause a tear or a failure or whatever you want to call it. So I think there's a little bit of that playing in. And then, you know, you wonder about like efficiency of removing clot, right? Like we always talk about the ACL doesn't heal. And part of the issue is synovial fluid breaking up that clot you need is that first little bit of 
the healing response. And maybe it's just more efficient in kids and it's not like around long enough for the actual thing to heal. But this is certainly a procedure that's got real, real, real tight indications. And for me, like on an MRI, you have to see periosteum bone to feel like there's going to be a chance. So I, I feel like from the, you know, taking care of a fair number of the adult world, I think there's probably a bunch of 35 year old, or, you know, the older population in this that probably had an injury, big swollen knee, came in, I definitely must be active enough to have an ACL reconstruction. And they probably would have done fine anyway. I know they did some, you know, side to side comparisons, but I think you get away with more in a, the, the authors kind of said the same thing, get away with more in adults because they probably don't put it to this, you know, most of us are not out playing the same level of sports we were when we were younger. And I wonder if that just exposure risk is the, the biggest confounder in this. Yeah, I think to me, that's that's got to be the biggest thing. Because, you know, like we we're kind of hinting at biologically, you would assume that the younger kids and the younger, uh, even young adults are advantaged compared to the older population. I mean, in this, the interquartile range, the upper end of it was 43 years old, right? So like that's yeah, pretty old for for an ACL tear um, and an ACL repair. So I think I think the activity level and the demands on the knee are are, are the key thing. Because biologically, I would I would imagine that the kids are uh, sort of more favorable. But what are they doing afterwards is the big question. And I think that's why this is probably failing more. That said, I think you know to some degree, some of this is is probably the future, right? And so um, there's like the bear trial and other things, and you know different things that uh, people are trying to do to maybe biologically augment ways to, to repair an ACL. And so I guess stay tuned and we'll figure out where that goes. But uh, at this point, um, I'm definitely very hesitant to, to repair an ACL primarily in a kid, unless like I think Pam said, you know, there's a clear bit of periosteum or bone or something there that I can work with. I agree. I think something we don't talk about enough is, um, you know, we talk about physiology and we're just starting to talk about psychological readiness. Although that's after, for example, an ACL injury, but that's, even more towards like managing fear and then fear contributing to re-injury. But I think something we don't talk about enough is that I probably have even mentioned this the last time though, is like adolescent, their adolescent's whole job is to like push boundaries, not listen. And their brains are not wired to have any understanding of long-term consequences. And so like you can say until you are blue in the face, like if you do this at four months post-op, you know, you're going to end up back in my office and there's, and, we're, and there's going to be tears. Um, but it's just, there's like, there's just an inability to, I think, like really understand that. And I think I, I, I'd love us to be able to figure out a way to like get it through their heads um, or to, to be able to manage just developmental level better. Total, total, total frustration of mine. You know, like I've had kids come back six weeks after an ACL reconstruction only to find out they were like rock climbing and playing basketball. Like what? You have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think we can all commiserate with <laughs> those challenges, no question about it. And, and so I think the, the younger it is, the worse. I mean, like not to get away from the ACLs, but like tibial spines, you know, a lot of those kids are even younger. And so it's like, you know, and I, I see I'm in Chicago, but we have these satellite clinics that are kind of out in a little more rural area almost. And these kids are on ATVs and dirt bikes and, you know, competitively and stuff. And they're they're trying to get back on that stuff. I'm like, guys, just take a second here, you know. Um, so it, it's a challenge. No question. So I, I will say I haven't done any ACL repairs and I'm not planning to in the near future. But one of the reasons that I'm intrigued by it is because I thought of it as potentially getting patients back faster and having a shorter recovery and having less sort of at-risk time and maybe being better for adolescents because they don't have such a long healing process 
that they have to behave for. So I guess I was disappointed I, I, to, to see the results of this study. I agree it's got to be behavior differences and sort of participation differences, but I don't think that explains a 40% failure rate because um, we know it's not nearly that high in adolescents with ACL reconstruction. To, to go back to what Cordelia said too, I think that the other part of it, part of it, in addition to the activity level and demands postoperatively, is what are the indications here, right? And so, you know, even if in an article they maybe make a blanket statement of we performed the surgery on X, right? There's obviously still subtleties and gray areas to that. And so, if some of these people were not necessarily that slam dunk, like, hey, there's periosteum bone or something like that, and we're really just trying to stick mushy, you know, damaged ligament onto <laughs> onto the, the 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 wall, the intercondylar notch. Yeah, that's probably going to be more likely to fail. So I think you know the, the the difficulty with some of these retrospective studies is is really parsing that out, right? If this was some a well designed prospective study where you're really saying, hey, unless you have this specific finding, you're excluded, and you can control for all these things prospectively, that that'll give you a better answer. So I think some of the I'd imagine some of the failures, if you will, are are probably also related to maybe some of the indications. I would think too. Yeah. So let's wrap things up by going uh, to another journal, to CORE, for an article entitled, Does Youth Baseball Result in Morphologic Changes of the Lateral Elbow, a Prospective MRI Study? And the, uh, the article that actually brought this to our attention that popped up in the literature uh, recently as an e-publication was a core insights article by Peter Fabricant that basically uh, is sort of like a brief review and commentary of another upcoming article. The actual article, I don't believe is even out yet. I couldn't find it even in EPUB format, but there's this article sort of acting as a big spoiler for it. So the original article is out of Rady Children's Hospital with senior authors Andy Pinnock and Eric Edmonds of the same name, does youth baseball result in morphologic changes of the lateral elbow? And the way uh, Dr. Fabricant described the situation and sums up that other article is, uh, we know basically two things. We know throwing stress can gradually change your anatomy, for example, in the shoulder. And we know that some elbow pathology can change your anatomy, like an OCD causing a uh, larger radial head. But we don't know if throwing is one of those things that changes your elbow anatomy. And in this study from Rady, they uh, followed a bunch of little leaguers. They got serial elbow MRIs, and they compared the throwing arm to the other arm. They were well-powered, very well-done study. And basically, they found no difference in uh, elbow anatomy, no change with high volumes of baseball participation. The authors basically call for continued studies, looking at things like year-round baseball players and other athletes. But overall, it sounds like what we have is a very well-powered study with negative findings regarding uh, elbow anatomy and baseball participation. Anybody who was there, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like this paper, or at least uh, an offshoot from it, was presented at Posna's Sports Subspecialty Day um, last year. I I remember that. I believe that was a different study looking at the shoulder, if I remember correctly. I felt like the take-home point from that was maybe they're not like long-term morphologic changes, and that's what this paper seems to be saying, but the kids who played a lot of baseball had at least areas of inflammation or edema within the bones. Like there were were like MRI abnormalities at least um, that were documented, and they changed over the course of this, like they worsened over the course of additional play. So uh, I'm doing some fact-checking right now. There is, uh, it also came out this year, and this other study was in JPO, same study group called The Curse of the All-Star Team, a single season prospective shoulder MRI study of Little League baseball players. Okay. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. that's the one. Good memory. Exactly right. They did find various sort of low-grade 
inflammation in the throwing shoulder that didn't answer any definitive questions, but certainly raised flags for long-term damage after um, heavy participation and uh, lots of throwing. And I, I think when this study does come out, you know, hopefully um, people sort of interpret it for what it is and, and don't use this as like a, an enabling influence to say, oh, yeah, cool. So let's just, you know, throw away pitch counts and get out there and do whatever you want and, and go wild and play baseball year round. Right. So um, like Cordelia said, I think, you know, even if there aren't necessarily like permanent anatomy changes, um, I think we already do know that year-round baseball, you know, high pitch counts, or early age sports specialists, and all these things do re- lead to more chronic and acute overuse or uh, chronic overuse injuries and acute injuries, right? So, um, I think you, you still need to sort of balance this in the bigger picture of sports specialization and uh, and injury risk. So they did baseline, and then they did follow up at three years. One of the things I would be interested in is, you know, the the kids who have like internal rotation deficits at the shoulder tend to have more stress on their elbow. Like, is there any kind of correlation if you have a lot of changes in the humerus or at the shoulder, maybe you're spared changes at the elbow, right? Like, is that at all possible? Because it's all one chain. I don't know. It completely makes sense. I would imagine that was sort of the train of thought that led them to look at this. I do think doing something similar to what they did with the shoulder where they're doing it like preseason, postseason, and then maybe follow-up could be interesting. And that, I mean, that's what Pete said. That was one of his recommendations. And this was, we should, we need to do the same study in the year round baseball players. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is a good place to wrap it up. Good night guys. Stay safe. All right. Take care everybody. Good night. Bye.